Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Week two in the NFL was not kind to quarterbacks, was it? Now, before I get to the horror that was quarterback play around the league, let me instead hit you with something positive first, because you know me. I'm all about the positive. I'm going to look for the positive instead of the negative, especially when there is so much negative. But no matter how much negative there is, you can always find some positive if you look hard enough. So let me hit you with some positive, and that positive is a Damian Harris highlight. Well, positive if you're Damian Harris and you're the Patriots. However, embarrassing, humiliating, and soul-snatching if you're a New York Jet. But then again, isn't wearing a Jets jersey embarrassing, humiliating, and soul-snatching in the first place? Why don't we start with the run? Check out this run from Harris, and then check out the number of bodies that he leaves in his wake. Runs up the middle, bounces off a hit, carries out of another tackle, across the 15, slips another hit, driving inside the 5, and fighting his way to the 1, pushing his way to the end zone. Is he in? Touchdown, Patriots! Relentless, Damian Harris. Herculean effort. What a run by Harris. Pat's radio on that call. Exactly how many tackles did that guy break on that play? Not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. Hey. Hey, it's right. That was unreal. I mean, that was some Marshawn Lynch stuff right there from Harris. That was some peewee football tackling from the Jets right there. They look like a bunch of six-year-olds trying to tackle a dad and were just hanging off him. Hell of a statement by Harris and a hell of a statement by the Jets. Jets defensive lineman Sheldon Rankins had this to say. It's something we can't have. It's not our standard and we won't stand for it. You know that whole thing, the standard is the standard. Man, that best not be their standard. Yeah, no, you won't stand for it. He just said that's not our standard. We won't stand for it. No, you won't stand for it because most of you guys were lying down on your back. Who? I mean, credit to Harris for doing his job. No credit for the Jets' defense for not doing theirs. I mean, seriously, how the hell does that happen to a Robert Sala coach defense? And it wasn't just the Jets' defense that had a rough day. Zach Wilson had a rough day. He threw four interceptions. In other words, he threw nearly as many picks as there were broken tackles on that one play. Four INTs in his first 10 pass attempts. Four (laughs) interceptions in 10 attempts. For perspective, he threw three interceptions last season. All season, yet he had four in 10 attempts. Four picks in 10 attempts is not easy to do. And my man just pulled it off. Yes, it was just his second game. Yes, even Jets fans will allow some leeway for that. They're willing to cut the young sensation some slack, but not that much. Not when he's getting picked four times in 10 attempts, even if all four weren't his fault. Four picks in 10 attempts is still four picks in 10 attempts. So, of course, Jets fan went Jets fan, and Jets fan ain't having it. Jets fan ain't having it, so Jets fan let him have it instead. And to his credit, 
Wilson rolled with that and agreed with them. Man, they should be Boeing. They should be Boeing, right? Right. Right. That's how you handle that. And that whole thing about Zach Wilson is how can he deal with New York? Will he be able to deal with New York? Time will tell. But that was the right reaction. They should be booing. He knew. You know you've had a bad game when you're admitting that your own fans were right to boo you off the field. You know you had a bad game when you know that and when you also have to answer questions about whether or not you are seeing ghosts. Do you feel like you were seeing ghosts out there at the turn? <laughs> no, most definitely not. Good job, Zach. Don't get hooked, man. How about the media already coming at him with, hey, yo, man, you feel like you were seeing ghosts out there? But as brutal as he was, and he was brutal, I'm not sure he had the worst day among quarterbacks. Not when countless guys were getting injured. Tua hurt his ribs. And if you saw the protection in front of him, that was not a question of if, but a matter of when and how badly maimed he was going to be because the Bills were running free and they were teeing off on this cat. And he was not the only one getting battered. Carson Wentz was as well, which is not surprising because he always is, no matter where he is. And now he's got a jacked up ankle. How about my guy Tyrod Taylor? How many times have you heard me say, this is a big Tyrod Taylor house? You know why I say that? Because I think I'm the only one who says that. This guy was playing his ass off and giving America's team, the Cleveland Browns, all they could handle before he hurt his hammy. Andy Dalton wrecked his knee. So there was a lot of bad quarterback play and a lot of bad luck and a lot of injuries. And then there was Joe Burrow. How about the day Joe Burrow had? So Burrow had three interceptions yesterday. Now I know what you're thinking. Hey, Rome, how can a guy throwing three interceptions be worse than a guy who threw four interceptions? I can answer that. In fact, here is your answer. Snap to Burrow, looking right, throwing right. It's intercepted. Intercepted by Roquan on his horse, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5, end zone. Touchdown! Touchdown, Bears! Pick six on a house call for Roquan Smith. Bears 16, Bengals 3. Not that this takes any great insight on my part, but Roquan, this dude is a stud. Hey, that'll happen, right? That'll happen when Roquan's on the field. Happens to us all. that'll, That'll happen, though, even to a guy like Joe Burrow. I mean, the thing about Burrow is this. He had not thrown an INT in 199 straight passes. But even the best will have that happen occasionally. Even the best will melt down. Even a young guy coming back from a significant injury, trying to knock off the rust and regain his mojo and his swagger. It could happen to him. He is a different dude. That's the kind of thing that as bad as that was, you know he'll bounce back. You know he'll bounce back immediately. Short memory, yo. yo. Remember, he had just gone 200 pass attempts without a pick, which was the longest active streak in the league. He's that good. So you know he's going to bounce back. I mean, I'm sure he'd bounce right back with his very next pass. He's not afraid to miss any shots. He's not afraid to throw the next interception. He's ready to rock. Play action. Good blitz pick oh. up by Mixon, and it's intercepted. Jalen Johnson with the pick. Uh-oh. 
about that call? He's not afraid. He's not afraid to rock. He's not afraid to throw the next interception, which is exactly what he did. Proving my point. Well, his point. All right, so granted, a little weird. A little weird for a dude of that caliber and pedigree to come right back and have that happen. So two passes in a row, two interceptions when he didn't have one for 199. But like I said, it happens. It happens to us all. Yeah, it happens. So you know what you do? And Burrow knows this. You get the bad ones out of your system. You keep moving. You fall off a horse. You get your ass right back on that horse. Joe Burrow is the last guy that you need to tell that to. Keep slinging it, Joe. All have ended in turnovers. Back-to-back picks as Burrow will throw on first down. Pressure up the middle. He's hit, and it's a third straight pick. A third straight interception. This one for Angelo Blackson. And it's first and goal Bears. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Three picks in three straight attempts. Maybe now you get your ass off that horse and you let somebody else ride it for a bit. This guy went 199 pass attempts without a pick. And then he threw three straight on three passes. I mean, that's an incredible number. I don't know if there's an analytics department that can crack the code on that one. How do you even explain something like that? How is that possible? How would Joe himself explain something like that? In talking about the second INT, he pretty much summed up the entire thing. You learn a lesson today that, you know, when your defense is playing as good as they are, you don't have to force those balls. You can kind of just let the game come to you. Hey, listen, I want to be clear about this. Not all of that was on him. And let me be clear about something else. In no way am I jumping ship on Burrow or running him under a bus or in front of a train which cannot stop. If any of you are doing that, then you're not bright. I'm just saying, that is a crazy-ass statistical anomaly, especially for a dude with a beautiful mind, just not a beautiful knee, and probably a few other things that he's got to work through, some things that are in his control and some things that are not, namely the turnstiles in front of him masquerading as offensive linemen. Now, the incredible thing about that, though, those two young QBs, Joe Burrow and Zach Wilson, may have had horrible days, but they still might not have been the worst quarterback or quarterbacks yesterday. There may have been one who was even worse than those two. And he is a former MVP. No names mentioned, Matt Ryan. How about that? I just know my man Trevor Price is sitting back cackling somewhere about that. In fact, I'm shocked that Trevor was not blowing me up throughout the entire game, which leads me to believe that Trevor didn't see that game because if he did, my phone would have been melting and then my dude would have been blocked because yesterday, Matty Ice went Matty Schaub. And yes, it was that bad. With Atlanta trailing by 10, eight minutes to go in the fourth, the Falcons needed their guy to step up and make a play. Instead, Ice stepped up and did this. Ryan takes a snap, gets the pass. Oh, picked off, intercepted. Sideline outside the numbers. 15, 10, 5, 3, 2, 1. Touchdown, Tampa Bay. Mike Evans, fire the cannons. Buck score, pick six. Ice in ibuprofen. Again, like I keep saying, that'll happen. Even to a former league MVP. Even in a situation like that. I mean, not great. But remember, the other guys are paid as well. They're paid to make plays like that. 
sometimes you have to just tip your cap and you got to keep moving. And that's what Matt Ryan did. Unfortunately, he kept moving in the direction of Mike Edwards, and it ended terribly because with just over four minutes to go, this happened. Ryan dropping his old pass, batted in the air, picked off inside the 10, touchdown Tampa Bay. Mike Mike Edwards. Edwards has two. Mike has two. That's two for him. Man, you want to talk about a statistical anomaly. That's two pick sixes in the same quarter. Two pick sixes in the same quarter to the same guy. That is amazing. And by amazing, I mean bleeping horrible. Matty Schaub himself cannot believe that. I mean, freaking incredible. A former league MVP just threw two pick sixes in the same quarter to the same guy. And yes, what I'm saying is that is even worse than four picks in a game in your first 10 passes. Worse than three picks on three straight passes. Because at least those guys did not just hand 13 points to the opposition. I mean, that really is amazing. I haven't seen a pick six performance like that since Matt Schaub had four straight games with a pick six. That was some God-level stuff. But if Matt Ryan really applies himself, he too can reach it. I truly believe he has it in him at this point. Truly believe he has what it takes, especially after those two plays. I'm not saying that this is an easy gig. In fact, the hardest gig in all sports is playing quarterback in the NFL. But damn, that was some horrific quarterbacking yesterday. But there's so much more. There really is so much more. It wasn't even all about the quarterbacks. Some other guys had rough days. Like take Vikings kicker Greg Joseph. This guy had this kick from 37 yards for a win over Arizona, a game Minnesota had to have. Nice snap, put down. Joseph, come on! It is good! No, he missed it. Good. Are you kidding me? He missed it right. He missed it right. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my. What a gut punch. Oh, my God. That is incredible. That is absolutely amazing. There is no bigger record scratch ever than Paul Allen screaming, Go! Then quickly switching. Oh, no, no, he missed it. It is good! All that was missing from that was, Oh, excuse me, my bad! Excuse me, my bad! And then both radio announcers just kept repeating that he missed it right. My bad, I called it wrong. I'm not sure who took that worse, the Vikings players or the Vikings announcers. Paul Allen sounded like he wanted to puke. I mean, this dude's beside himself. He simply cannot ponder missing that kick. This guy cannot get his dome wrapped around it at all. And you know what? I don't blame him at all. You have a chance to beat a good Arizona team, and all you need is a 37-yard chippy to do it. Man, you do your bleeping job, you get back to the locker room, a bleeping hero, even though you're not. Is there anyone anywhere who thought that guy was going to miss that kick from 37 yards? Not his coach. I know Mike Zimmer felt pretty damn good about that as they lined up for it. I felt good about that kick. You know, I know he missed the extra point earlier and kind of kind of like that, but, you know, he's he's been kicking good. We're indoors. You know, it's perfect surface. I'm thinking, you know, this this should be an easy one here. I think we're all thinking that. 
I was thinking that should be an easy one. I know the announcers were thinking that that should be an easy one. Everybody was. Instead, we got this. High snap. Put down. Joseph, come on! It is good! No, he missed no it. Good. Are you kidding me? He missed it right. He missed it right. Oh, Are my goodness. Oh, my. My bad. What a gut punch. Oh, my God. My bad. An absolutely incredible radio call. Having two pick sixes in one quarter is the most improbable thing to happen in sports since Tati Sr. hit two grand slams in one inning off the same pitcher. Now, you know me. I'm no glass half-empty, brah. I'm all about the positive. I'm all about keeping it positive. But that was not easy to do when there was so much negative and so much garbage on the field yesterday. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? This time, do not make a shake or eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach, wherever. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying that way. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? Charles Davis. Charles, it's been a moment or two since we last spoke. How are you doing and how is your life right now with the NFL back? Oh, it's good to talk with you again, Jim. You're right. Last time we saw each other was Super Bowl. That is true. That is true. So how are you doing, man? What, What a great time that always is. But my life is fantastic because the NFL is back. So who who can be upset with that and Look, I'm not going to get into all the rest of the stuff that we're continuing to combat in this world. We're all trying to fight it the proper way. But when you look out and you see the full stadiums again and the enthusiasm and smiles on people's faces. I was in Pittsburgh this past week, and you know how much they love their Steelers. They had a doubleheader. Pitt played at home on Saturday. The Steelers on Sunday. It was pretty cool. That is really cool, actually. Charles Davis joining us. So there's a lot of energy, and people are fired up. So you've got the Raiders and the Steelers, Charles. The Raiders, let me ask you about them. They were coming off a short week. They were traveling a long way for that game. What were you expecting to see from them, and then what do you make of the way the Raiders showed up? Jim, we were, you know, I think our whole crew and probably all of us in the football world had the same question in our minds, And, and, and I need you to just chime in very quickly. I think we were all saying, okay, what will the Raiders look like? They have every reason to not play well in this game. Injuries in the offensive line. Big win on Monday night to open up their brand-new stadium, so it's a short week. Go up there, give a little bit of effort, but if ultimately you don't win or you kind of, eh, hey, no one expects us to anyway. Instead, they had even more injuries that occurred, more injuries during the game. Now, Pittsburgh had their share as well, so, so it's not like I'm just saying, hey, it was all about the Raiders. But to go on the road and play with that energy, play with that passion, foil much of what Pittsburgh was trying to do on offense with a defense that was abysmal last year. John Gruden putting the game totally in Derek Carr's hands because Josh Jacobs wasn't available to run the football. You put it all together, that's one of the most impressive wins the Raiders have had in many a year. And I've heard all the talk. You have too, Jim. Hey, okay, the Raiders start 2-0 and the last two years. They end up finishing 7-9, 8-8. I think this team has a chance to be better than that. We're going to withhold judgment just a little bit as the season plays out. 
but they feel like a different team, especially on the defensive side of the ball with Gus Bradley as their new defensive coordinator. Charles Davis joining us. I agree with you. And to answer your question, what I expected was, you know, normally, Charles, when everybody goes one way, I want to go the other way, except that I went the same way as everybody else. And specifically what I did expect, I expected that Steelers defense to dominate that Raiders line. And this is not yeah. what happened. Let me ask you about the quarterback, Derek Carr. He threw for nearly 400 yards. He had a couple of touchdowns in the win. He had more than 260 yards in the second half. He's been great in the past and also taken a lot of heat in the past. Exactly where do you think he is right now as a quarterback? At his best. Absolutely at his peak as a quarterback in the NFL right now. I think all the questions that we've all asked over the years about is Derek Carr John Gruden's guy? What kind of relationship do they have? You know, is there somebody else out there that they covet? I think all of that is being laid to rest by the way Derek Carr is playing. They had a slow start in the Monday night game. We remember that. They didn't play much in the preseason. And from really second quarter on, opening night, their car's been really, really good. Add in the toughness factor he doesn't get enough credit for because he got a pretty good shot on the ankle. They tape it up. He comes back out and throws a 61-yard touchdown pass to Ruggs. And, and Pittsburgh hadn't pressured much in that game, which is unusual for them. But on that play, they brought the fifth guy. They brought the nickel back as the fifth guy. He throws it off the back foot and arches it up there and hits Ruggs perfectly downfield. I think he's absolutely at his peak, seeing the game, understanding the game, playing the game with extreme confidence. And you can just tell, whatever we talked about before, Jim, I think we need to throw it out the window. He and John Gruden are perfectly in sync. He is John Gruden's quarterback, and John Gruden is happy to be his coach. Charles Davis is joining us. All right, Charles, what about Ben Roethlisberger? After the game, he said, quote, I need to be better. How has he looked to you in the first two games of the season, and where do you think that he thinks that he needs to improve? I think that, one, he took that on for the entire team, Jim. I don't think that was just strictly him talking about himself. He, he's saying he needs to be better because as an 18-year guy, he knows he needs to be the leader. And he has some youngsters on this team that he can't throw under the bus. One at left tackle in Dan Moore, one at center in Kendrick Green, one at running back in Najee Harris, one at tight end Pat Fryermuth. So he's got to get all this integrated, and they're continuing to work on that. Oh, yeah, he's got a new offense coordinator in Matt Canada. So that's one thing. The second part, if we're being specific where he needs to be better, is he needs help. They have to run the football. And I know it's a tired trope. I get all that. People at home are like, ah, but we throw it in the NFL. The Steelers are built to run the ball because it helps their defense be even more dominant than what they usually are. That defense hung in there with Derek Carr and crew as best they could. They ran the ball for 39 yards, Jim. I feel like I'm in bizarro world when I watch the last three years of Pittsburgh Steelers running the football. It just doesn't make sense, does it? This is a team that's near the end of the the league or dead last in running the football. That's why they drafted Najee Harris. That's why they added the offensive linemen. They still don't have that coordination yet. The game is still on the shoulders of Big Ben way too much, and people are defending the receivers well on the run after the catch. They're not getting the big plays after they catch the football very often. And so where Ben's saying he needs to be better, I think they need to help him. They need to be able to run the ball more so that when they do run that dink and duck, you know, duck, duck throwing, it, it becomes much more effective downfield. Oh, I'm with you. You're, in fact, you're ahead of me. I was going to ask you about that, Charles. I think that that offensive line is still very much a work in progress and, to me, very much a concern. Charles Davis is joining us, so you already answered that question. Let me ask you really quickly about the defense. T.J. Watt left that game with a groin injury. If he misses any extended period of time, what does that mean for the entire Steelers' defense? 
it changes their rotation, Jim, because what we saw in Buffalo when T.J. Watt was healthy and, and had the super fresh legs coming off of the, the, the hold-in in training camp, even though he trained really hard, I do think the old adage about you know being in shape and football shape are always going to be two different things. And we've seen this many times where guys have come off of not playing much in the preseason or holding out or whatever and are pretty darn good in game one, and we all joke the same way, don't we? Huh, didn't need training camp. I forgot what year it was. Lawrence Taylor held out the entire preseason. Shows up on a Saturday. I think they opened on a Monday in Washington. Just a guess. I don't know if I have it exactly right. But I feel like Lawrence got like three sacks that night. And we were all, oh, oh, Lawrence Taylor, he doesn't need it. But he was at an age where his body didn't recover the same way. And I'm being somewhat facetious, but I may not be too far off. Jim, his next sack came like week eight. Okay, his body just didn't react the way you would have thought it would have. With T.J. Watt, it's different because he's younger, but he was spectacular in Buffalo. And now he tweaks a groin, making a cut. I just wonder how much of that is coming off of like going from zero to 100 and being able to do that again the next week. Hopefully he'll be back soon. But how it changes things is now Melvin Ingram's a front-line guy. He had hoped to be a rotational guy. You know, this part of his career – Alex Highsmith has to really step up and become even more of a force off the edge. And now your third outside linebacker is Jameer Jones, who came out of Notre Dame two years ago, didn't make it in the league, goes back to Notre Dame's pro day last year. They notice him, sign him, and he makes the team on special teams. But now he's your third outside linebacker. It's a big change for them. Charles Davis joining us, breaking it all down. All excellent points. Now, you mentioned Buffalo. How about the Bills? They bounced back from that loss to Pittsburgh in week one. They hammer Miami in Miami 35 nothing. Charles, when you look at the Bills and what you've seen so far, how do you think this year's version compares to last year's team? I think this year's version may not have this exact same record as last year's version, but I think by the end of the year, barring the catastrophic injuries we all you know just put out there, they'll be a better football team. And here's why. Week one, I felt like they approached the game. It was just going to be a continuation of 2020. We'll do the exact same things in terms of, hey, they can't cover us. We can put five out there, put it all in Josh's hands, et cetera, et cetera. And they had a few bumps along the way. Brian Dable is a very smart offensive coordinator. He caught a lot of grief about, you know, game one and that fourth down call and all that. People need to put that aside. Brian Dable is too smart not to adjust, and we saw some of that in this game against Miami. They'll be fine. The big deal's on the defensive side. They drafted Greg Rousseau out of Miami because they needed a pass rusher. Did you see him yesterday? Two sacks, those long arms, plays with that length. That's what they need. I think they'll be better on that side of the ball, and that's why ultimately they'll be a better team, and they'll be even more battle-tested because the schedule's going to be tougher for them this year too. I like Buffalo a lot. I thought that week one, yeah, they got beat by a pretty darn good Steelers team. They're always going to be the Steelers. But overall... Maybe a little bit of a wake-up call for Buffalo. I think they'll be fine. Spending a few more moments with Charles Davis. Charles, I know you're focused on the game that you were calling, but I want your thoughts on Zach Wilson, if you don't mind, because he had that yeah. really rough day for the Jets. He had the four interceptions. He heard the boos. I know you studied him closely ahead of the NFL draft. What would you say to Jets fans who were worried two starts into his NFL career? Yeah, it's understandable why you're worried, because we're in that type of time frame where everything is a reaction right here right now and that you know we're now blueprinting that's who you are we keep forgetting that people grow we keep forgetting that people learn here's the thing i'm not gonna pull the aaron Rodgers relax thing 
But Zach, and this is something I wrote down at the end of my, my scouting this year, or I getting ready for the draft, and I wrote it in big letters in my book, and it's very simply this. Let's not get too crazy when we watch these pro days with the off-platform throws that wow everyone. Let's make sure that they can drop back three, five, seven steps, hit that back foot, and hit the receiver in the proper spot. Not that Zach Wilson can't do that. He can but the wow plays are why we get so excited about him. Drew Locke and his off-platform performance in his pro day, that's what got people excited. That's why in Denver we thought he was going to be that guy. I could go on and on, Jim. Bottom line is, can you do the fundamentals? As Mike Tom likes to say, we want to do the fundamental things fundamentally well every play, right? Okay, got it. Bottom line is, that's what you need to see with Zach Wilson. Right now I think he's trying to make all those BYU off-platform throws, spectacular plays. He's got to take the routine. Do those every single time. And I think that's what Robert Sala and the Jet staff would be coaching in mind. Hey, hit the routine plays. Let the spectacular happen when they're supposed to. Every play, you can't turn it into one of those. That's what the Jets fans have to focus on. And I think this young man will make that shift. Charles Davis, my guest. Really quickly, Charles, earlier this year, you were on the call of the Black College Football Hall of Fame Classic over Labor Day weekend. Now, back in the day, your father played at Bluefield State and HBCU. So what did it mean to you to be on the call for the Classic this year? It meant everything for me, absolutely. And then the reason, one of the big reasons why I'm excited to do it every year is to honor my father and to honor all the people who played at the HBCUs. Bluefield State, as you mentioned, where my dad played, the Big Blues, they dropped football. They just brought it back this year for the first time, Jim, and, H- and Bluefield State integrated in the 1970s. So they're going to have football for the first time since then. That gives my dad a sense of pride. Roger Brown, one of the great players at Maryland Eastern Shore, actually was Maryland State back in his day. My dad played against Roger Brown. He just passed away the other day. You know that, that those these are the type of things that are meaningful. And I was raised in it. My my tickets, my, excuse me, my birthday gift every year were tickets to the Whitney M Young Classic in New York. I got to see Grambling and Alcorn State and Bethune Cookman and teams like that come through. It means everything to me, especially in tribute to my dad. Really cool stuff. He is an NFL and CBS analyst. He is an NFL network analyst. He is a Madden analyst. He is a good friend of the program. He is Charles Davis. Charles, I appreciate it. Hope you and I can see each other again really soon. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. I would certainly love to see you again long before the next Super Bowl. Hey, you want to hear something incredible? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how incredible is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. That's where. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. I want to talk about last night's game, though. Wild affair. So you got the Ravens, and they've already had themselves, if you ask me, a full season in the first two weeks alone. Maybe two full seasons in their first two weeks alone. A season looked like it was over before it started when they lost one guy after another in their running back's room for the year, no less, and they were losing defensive starters left and right. I mean, things got off to a terrible start for them. Then you chase those injuries with that really bizarre loss in Vegas on Monday night. Honestly, I would not have blamed them if there was a feeling of, man, this just is not going to be our year. This is just not meant to be. Look at all the signs. Look at all the terrible omens. 
Like, dudes know this. And they just sort of start to kind of shut it down, even subconsciously, because they know sometimes it's just bigger than them. Sometimes the football gods are just trying to tell you something. Sometimes those same football gods know that you're wounded and backed up and you're against the wall. And then what do they do? They send the Kansas City Chiefs to town to finish you off. And especially with how Kansas City has owned the Ravens of late. And the fact that even Lamar Jackson has been on record as saying that KC is Baltimore's, quote, kryptonite. And he's right. So, no, it did not look good. Not at all. But you knew last night had a chance to be a little bit different from the moment when they had that badass whistle of Omar's echo throughout the stadium before the game. That was pretty cool. So you had some goosebump stuff there, right? Great tribute to the great Michael K. Williams. And a hell of a way to get that crowd pumped up. Only problem was, less than a minute into the game, KC was on the board. Jackson back in the shotgun, third and eight for the 27. Here's the snap. Jackson back, looks, throws right side. It's intercepted. Picked off by the Chiefs. Back down the far sideline. Tyron Matthew cuts inside, avoids a tackle, and scores. Matthew picked it off. He takes it in for six, and the Chiefs are on the board first. This dude's something else. I got to be honest. One of my favorite NFLers ever, honestly. I mean, you see that and you think two things. Number one, Tyron Matthew, still a beast. Number two, Kansas City, still Baltimore's Kryptonite. Like Kryptonite. But you want to talk about the ultimate Kryptonite move? It was that right there. You come out on the road, you pick six, the home team, 50 seconds into the game. At that point, it felt like it was going to be another beatdown of Baltimore. And it still felt that way, even though Baltimore was down by just four going into halftime. It felt like they were doing everything they could to hang around, and then Kansas City was going to do what Kansas City always does, especially when Kansas City does it to Baltimore. You know, come out in the second half, throw it into fifth gear, throw that switch, embarrass and humiliate Baltimore again in their own house with the entire country watching, and then send them reeling with an 0-2 start. Because that's how it usually goes against Kansas City, especially for Baltimore. KC has big brothered the Ravens for years. And then that continued in the second half when Patrick Mahomes hit Byron Pringle for a touch. Back, lifts that right leg, slight bend at the waist, gets a chest high snap, quick throw over the middle, that's caught across the 30-yard line, cutting left out of the 25, Pringle out to the 20, turns the corner, 15, 10, 5, he's gone! Touchdown, Kansas City! Byron Pringle made the catch in the middle of the field. He cut left out to the near sideline, and he strolls in for six. A 40-yard touchdown, the catch and run by Pringle. It's given Kansas City a 10-point lead. Right? Tutty. Made it look easy. But then I got to say, there was something. Watching that game, there was something that felt a little bit different. Like Baltimore, this time they were not going away. Baltimore this time was not looking for that proverbial place to lie down, curl up, and die. No, they stood in. And on that next drive, Lamar Jackson came right back. He had a jaw-dropping dime of his own. 
34, three wide against five defensive backs. And he throws, he's up in the air as he throws it to Hollywood Brown. Touchdown. Lamar Jackson jumping up in the air, getting it to his man, the 42, and a TD. Go on with it, Lamar. A little jump pass down the field. There you go. Just every once in a while, this guy will flash something that kind of takes your breath away. Look at him. Yeah, there's something to that. Every once in a while, that guy will do something like that. In fact, more than every once in a while. I mean, who throws a jump pass like that in that situation and makes it look that good? I mean, that's not Tim Tebow trying to heave the ball over the goal line. That's not a jump pass from the one-foot line. That was Lamar looking like Magic Johnson and improvising on the fly, just hanging above the rim, in the air, running forward, maybe going to scramble for the first down, and then on third and four, elevating and hitting Hollywood Brown for the touchdown. Again, not some jump pass by a wannabe fullback from the one-yard line. See, that's a reminder of what Lamar has in his bag and what he's capable of. Yes, he has struggled, but never forget, it's the same guy who ripped the league MVP in 2019. That was like only a few games ago, but for some reason, folks seem to forget that. So that pass had that stadium rocking. But, again, back and forth, back and forth. These are the Chiefs that we're talking about. This is the unicorn that is Patrick Mahomes that we're talking about. And this is the all-world tight end Travis Kelsey that we're talking about. Mahomes waiting, gets the snap. He's back against the blitz. He's looking, looking, moving to his right. Mahomes giving ground throws. That one is caught. That's Kelsey cutting left out. Breaks a couple of tackles, 40. Down to the 35-30. Near side numbers, 25. Out of an ankle tackle, 20. Down the sideline of the 10. Jumps over a defender. Hit from behind. Diving into the end zone. Touchdown, Kansas City. Travis Kelsey did the work. That is a horrific job by the secondary of the Baltimore Ravens tackling. My man, Ross, you are right. That was a horrible job by the secondary tackling. However, man, Travis Kelsey, that's not Damian Harris rumbling down the field and trucking, guys. That's Travis Kelsey listed at 6'5", 260, breaking tackles, juking dudes out of their shoes, running over fools, hitting you with the force of an offensive lineman, but the footwork of a running back. That ain't right. Now, Ross is right. The tackling was terrible, but that ain't right. Then again, big dude ain't normal. What that was, though, was predictable. That was the Ravens getting big brothered again. In other words, KC going Cal in Vegas on them. In other words, ripping and reaching into their chest and taking their heart out and making them eat it. Next time you fly to Las Vegas, I'll be waiting for you at the airport. Then I'm going to rip that beard off your face and make you eat it. That's what they did. I'm going to rip that heart out of your chest and make you eat it. Instead, the Ravens, right when I thought that's what was going to happen, they went off Steven Seagal with it. They were, wait for it, wait, hard to kill. You know, clones, got to admit, I'm a little disappointed. You've been sleeping on Big Steve. You've been sleeping on Big Steve. You were obsessed with Big Steve for years. And somehow it seems like he fell off your radar. Anyway, the Ravens, my point is, they didn't blink. They didn't flinch. They were not looking for a comfy place to lay down. And the defense that had just been put on skates by Kelsey came up huge on the next series. Three-man rush. 
and there comes the fourth late, and the pass is picked off at the 44-yard line. Tavon Young intercepts a rush three, and then a fourth guy came in. O.A., the rookie, forcing the issue, forcing the interception. Fantastic defensive call. Yeah, let me get something out of the way on that. That was shocking. Shocking and how horrible decision that was by Patrick Mahomes. And I just say that because that guy always makes the right decision. That guy always makes the right decision. But that was the wrong decision right there. Like, I I have never seen a guy, that guy, that particular guy, make that kind of a decision. That was the first pick he has ever thrown in the month of September. Ever. And the Ravens offense responded with a touchdown to make it 35-30 KC. Then the Ravens defense showed up again and forced a punt. The thing about this game was there were so many twists and turns and so many back and forths that I can't even get to the end of what I want to say about this game to set it up properly to beat the end of the first hour. But what I will say is I go to the first break or the break at the end of the hour. Baltimore went on an eight-minute grown-ass man drive. There was an absolute statement about who they are and who they could be. What that is is a DNA drive. That told you a ton about that team and its heart and its character and its grit and its toughness. They showed me a lot last night. And I did not think they could do that against a team that has been, quote, grip night. I get that it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing and waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you might feel a little tempted. You might try and sneak across the tracks. Don't do it. Ever. To the naked eye, trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they actually are, and they cannot stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can still take a train over a mile, a mile to stop. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is this. You can't know how quickly the train is going to arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it still ends in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you need to remember just one thing. Stop, because trains can't. Paid for by NHTSA. He is Tom Verducci. Tom, it's great to have you back. How are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you? Great. It's good to have you, Tom. Thanks for making time. Always look forward to it. You've got a great piece in Sports Illustrated on Shohei Otani up right now. I, I want to ask you, when you first started to think about the piece and observing him throughout the season, what were the types of questions you had personally that you were looking to answer? The biggest thing for me, Jim, was how, how is this even possible? How is he doing it? from a logistical point of view, planning point of view, physical point of view. I mean, it's crazy that anybody even tries to do what he's doing, being a true two-way player. But to be able to do it at his level and now doing it six months into a full season, that's what I wanted to get at because I know we use Babe Ruth as a comp, and Ruth actually only did it as a full-time two-way player for like three, three and a half months in the 18 and 19 seasons. So that's what I wanted to get at, and – the bonus for me was figuring out that this guy is doing it for one reason only. He just loves baseball. This is what he loves to do. And so for all the people who say, man, I wonder what he'd be like if he just specialized as a pitcher, or man, what if he just hit? How good would he be? I think we're seeing the best of Otani because he is doing both. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say that. In fact, you answered that question. I was going to say that there's always that focus, Tom, on like, well, yeah, if the guy just did one thing, imagine how great he'd be. But the fact of the matter is he's doing both because he loves the game so much. I thought that A.J. Hinch had a great, great quote when he told you, quote, to see it in person is something I'll always remember, end of quote. He then praised his pitching and his power and said, quote, I'm mostly amazed at the ease that he plays with. He doesn't try too hard or give the impression that he's stressed physically or mentally, end of quote. I mean, it's like, not only is he doing the impossible, Tom, he's making it look easy. How is it possible that somebody of his size can make something so hard look so simple? Well, you start with desire, right? As I said, this is his passion. So all this is coming from the heart. Remember, he jumped to the big leagues a year ahead where of when he could have been a totally unrestricted international free agent. Like, put him on the market with no cap on what he could earn. So he gave up literally a couple hundred mil to come to the major leagues a year earlier than he did. Start with that. Now look at him physically, right? The comp I use is not a baseball player. It's Michael Phelps. You know, he's long, he's lean. He's got the broad shoulders, thin waist, the long levers, which is great for both pitching and hitting. But he's also, like, freakishly flexible. I mean, there's pictures of him where he can do things with his shoulder joints and elbows that, I mean, it, it hurts looking at it. But the way his body moves through space is just so fluid because he is so flexible and he is long and lean. So he's perfectly conditioned. He's got the right attitude. And besides that, he's a baseball junkie. <laughs> this guy, he, he lives and breathes baseball. You know, I, you sometimes wonder, like, what else does he do? Because he's totally invested into the game of baseball. Um, is there an answer? Like, what else does he do? Anything? <laughs> Like a lot of people his age, he plays video games. Right. <laughs> and that's pretty much it, really. I mean, when you talk to uh, the Angels staff and those people there, you know, you'll see in the course of the game he's on those uh, tablets a lot, trying to learn more about the other team's pitcher. Um, but he, let me get something straight here. He does have fun doing it. It's not like he's just totally locked in as a baseball nerd, and, and that's everything. Um, you know, he's he's a joy to be around, and I think – when you think about how he's able to do it physically, Jim, I, I go back to something the pitching coach Matt Wise told me that he throws the ball pretty. You know, he told his 13-year-old son, "Listen, if you can emulate a way to throw a baseball, watch Otani do what he does." So he's a he's a template for a lot of things, but for me, it's kind of an old-school template where he's playing the little league version of baseball, where you get to do everything. And you do it with a smile on your face. Incredible. Tom Verducci is joining us. So in, as you write, in terms of power and stolen bases, he's having a season that is in the league of guys like Willie Mays, Mike Schmidt, Jose Canseco, Alex Rodriguez. And then at the same time, he's on pace to become the ninth pitcher in history to strike out at least 10 batters per nine innings with a winning percentage of at least 8, 10, over 20 starts or more. I mean, there's so many different ways to measure his greatness. Do you have a particular stat or anecdote that we haven't discussed that's your favorite? Well, I think in a sense, I would say this guy throws the hardest pitch to hit in baseball. That's a split-fingered fastball, right? Batters are hitting 067 <laughs> against that one pitch. Yesterday, the A's went 0 for 19. So it is the singular most difficult pitch to hit in baseball. That alone makes him an elite pitcher. But yet the same guy who throws the, the most difficult pitch to hit in baseball has 44 home runs, 23 stolen bases, and oh, by the way, managers have intentionally walked him more than anybody else in baseball. Now, there's only two other hitters you could say that about in the course of baseball history, and that's Bonds and Griffey. So, 
I mean, the company that he's putting himself in, I know we use Babe Ruth as the comp in terms of, you know, doing both in one season, but you really have to break it down individually and compare him pitcher to pitcher and hitter to hitter, and he compares with some of the best in the game's history. And it's a shame that, you know, he's not surrounded by a healthy Mike Trout and a healthy Anthony Rendon where pitchers do have to pitch to him because, you know, he's second in baseball and seeing the fewest fastballs in the strike zone. So he could be even better, I believe, if he was surrounded by a healthy Angels lineup. Right, Tom. So to that point, like the team has not reached the postseason since 2014. The streak is unlikely to end this year. How important is it for the sport overall for the Angels to reach the postseason at some point with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani? Well, let's start with the Angels, right? I mean, there's no rebuilding if you're Artie Moreno. You've got Trout on his contract. Mike turned 30 this year. He's had trouble staying healthy the last couple of years. I don't want to say his window is closing. I mean, he's too good of a player. But you start to hear the clock on the prime of Mike Trout, at least. And the contract at Rendon, making him the most expensive third base in baseball history. You're all in if you're Artie Moreno. So you have to keep throwing money at this team. And now you've got Otani, and you can't waste this generational talent. Um, actually, he's once-in-a-century kind of talent. So you have to get in it, whether it's for a Max Scherzer. They tried briefly for Cole last year. You have to go get pitching to support those guys. And as far as Major League Baseball goes, I truly believe that the stars of baseball don't become crossover, you know, multi-generational, multi-sport, you know, attractions unless you get to the postseason and really probably the World Series as well, right? Derek Jeter is in the Hall of Fame. That's because, you know, he's good, A, but B, he grew up on our television screen every fall. You know, playing in the World Series. Otani and Trout, we don't see them in the postseason. And to be a true major league star, and, and I think Otani represents really everything that's great about baseball. I think he is a fantastic role model for the game. Obviously, he's important to baseball's finances because he's an international star. But you need to see him play in the postseason before he, he truly can be the face of baseball, which I think he can. But baseball is a little bit different where team success really matters if you're going to be a true superstar. Absolutely. He needs that help. So final thoughts, Tom, in terms of individual talent and upside, you mentioned that he's a once-in-a-generational player, a once-in-a-century kind of player. If he is able to stay healthy, what is his ceiling or maybe is there no ceiling? Yeah, I wouldn't put much past him. I, I think in terms of pitching, you're probably looking at the ceiling because I don't think you can pitch him every fifth, fifth day. So he's not going to rack up 200 innings, 300 strikeouts. That's just asking too much. He was conditioned to throw you know, once a week. That's what he will do. But offensively, I do think there's more in the tank. And again, it all gets back to me with supporting him so that you know, if you're Bob Melvin in the other dugout, Wherever the manager is, you're saying, there's no way I'm letting this guy beat me. We're just going to pitch around him in any kind of a situation that's even somewhat meaningful. Take that away. Give him more passes and pitches in the strike zone. And I think you're looking at a guy who can hit 50-plus home runs or even more than that. I think the batting average will be higher. And obviously, with guys on bases, RBIs are going to go up. So I think his offensive upside is uh, he has not scratched the surface yet. There is more in the tank there for Otani. But pitching-wise, not that this is anything bad because he punches out 10.5 batters per nine innings. Um, but 
I think you're seeing him at his top uh, in terms of what he can do on the mound. I'm not going to ask you more of what I'm already getting from the guy, Tom, but hey, you know he's a great base runner, too. Can you imagine this guy going like 40-40 on top of all this? Not, not that uh, I would make what? that a priority. He, he but could. I would not put that past him. I think sometimes they pull the reins in on Shohei, but yeah, I mean, he's got the fastest time from home to first base. He can almost take a bag when he wants. So that would definitely be in the wheelhouse when you're talking 40-40. That's an amazing stat, Also, We didn't even get into that, that he's got the fastest time or second fastest time from home to first base as well at that size. I mean, we could go on and on and on. It's a really good piece. You should read it. It's in Sports Illustrated. It's on Shohei Otani. Of course, Tom Berducci wrote it. MLB Network, Fox Sports, Sports Illustrated. Tom, great to have you back. Always appreciate you and the relationship. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, always great, Jim. Thank you. Let me ask you something, and tell me if this sounds familiar. You've got one device that allows you to catch the game live, another one that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for the good stuff. Well, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called DirecTV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites all together like never before. So you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. What that means is no more juggling remotes, no more need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there is no annual contract that rules So get rid of the clutter because clutter's the worst. Get rid of the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. With everything that went on yesterday, I mean, there's so many other things I'd rather talk about. As an example, I would really like to talk about Trey Turner getting ejected in Pittsburgh and whether or not there was a projectile flying in somebody's face before the ejection. Because as we've talked about numerous times, if you spit in somebody's face, that's a reason to go. Or I could even go off the grid and take it to another sport. Talking about a reason to go. How about NASCAR? What led Kevin Harvick to be dropping a chicken bleep a freaking, and a I'm ready to rip somebody's freaking head off in a post-race interview. I just told him, you know, it was kind of a chicken shit move that he did there at the end. You know, we race, we're racing for the freaking win at Bristol. We're three wide in the middle, and he throws a temper tantrum like, like um, you know, I was just trying to, trying to get the lead and racing hard. Then he pulls up in front of me and just sits there until I lose the whole lead. So they can boo all they want. I don't care. I'm, I'm ready to rip somebody's freaking head off. All right, so that's good stuff right there, right? That's what I want to be talking about. I'd even talk about that weird tweet that Jacksonville posted last night. Lots to talk about, but once again, I got to talk about the refs. I got to talk taunting. I have to talk about the idiotic flags that were being thrown left and right. And I've been warning everybody for a long time now that the new focus on taunting was a terrible idea. The second that came up, I knew that was a terrible idea. And I hate to say that I told you so, but I really did tell you so. Because it is ruining games. Ruining games. Check this quote, unquote, taunting from the Houston-Cleveland game. This was considered taunting. 
to the outside. That is complete for a first down. Being rolled down at the 40-yard line is the tight end, Jordan Akins. After the play, unsportsmanlike conduct, number 88 spinning the ball in the opponent's bench. That's number 88's first punt for disqualification. Literally one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. And no hyperbole in that. Literally one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. Imagine getting on a microphone in front of 67,000 people in the building and millions watching at home and having to explain that you're penalizing somebody for spinning the ball in front of the opponent's bench. I mean, how stupid is that? A flag for one of my favorite things ever. I've always thought that was one of the coolest moves ever. A dude dropping a spinning rock on an opponent after making a big play. I love when receivers do that. I love when Steve Smith used to do that. I love that move. And you want to take one of the best things out of the game. Man, for who? For what? That is so dumb. Almost as dumb as this flag in the fourth quarter of the Tennessee-Seattle game on Seahawks TV, DJ Reed. target and DJ Reed had the recovery and now a flag comes in that is a late flag well it's a taunting call now if the receiver had caught it got up and spun the ball no taunting there after the play was over taunting I mean I'm telling you that that was a justifiable fired up reaction from Reed after a big play in the fourth quarter a big play in the fourth quarter, and they hit him with a 15-yard penalty. And then how about this explanation? First down. That's number two's first foul in the category of unsupposed play conduct. He gets another foul in the same category. He will be disqualified. I mean, and there were so many more. Like, if you're not watching on CBS Sports Network, all he did was get up and was literally just fired up and gestured and kind of had a fist pump. I mean, there were so many more. There were entire montages of this. And honestly, as much as I love this league, it makes the league look terrible. It's just so dumb. And it's so idiotic. You know, how about Chicago's Deshaun Gibson clapping in the face of Jamar Chase following a drop pass on third down? That's 15 yards, apparently. Four minutes later, Cincinnati's Von Bell was hit with 15 for taunting Andy Dalton after an incompletion. Now, you could argue that taunting Andy Dalton is like kicking a child. But still, it should not be a flag. As Gibson were to say later on. I wasn't really saying much. I just clapped, man. It was a huge play on third down, pumping up my guys. And that's just the type of thing. It's the energy that you're playing with these guys. Uh, I don't want to be out there if I can't be happy for my guys, man, when they make big plays. That's what this game is about, man. So it's just adrenaline. That's it. He's just happy for his guys, pumping his guys up. It's just adrenaline. He acknowledged that if this is how the game is going to be called, he can't do that. But I'm going to say right now that if this is how that game is going to be called... They're going to ruin the game. Nobody is looking for the Zebras to inject themselves into the game like this. It does not make the game better. It makes the game worse. So much worse. This is not like cracking down on headshots. There is no safety component to this. I know the league had to get tough on headshots because it was threatening the health of the players. I know some of the players were pissed about that, but my message at the time was and is, this is how the game is changing. You have to adapt. It's the right thing. But that's not what this is. Not even close. 
Like, this is solving a problem that nobody wanted solved. This was a solution in search of a problem that did not, did not exist. Worse, it was a solution that went to create a problem that has created an even bigger problem where no problem existed, right? There's not a fan alive who is saying to themselves, man, I'll tell you what, there is way too much taunting going on in this game. In fact, I can't even watch it anymore. This is all about some people in the league who got their feelings hurt when Tyreek Hill was backflipping. So they wanted to end it. Remember, this was John Mara of the Giants talking last month. Kind of sick and tired of the, of the taunting that does go on from time to time on the field. We've tried to balance um, the sportsmanship with allowing the players to have fun, and there's always a fine line there. But none of us like to see that, and uh, it's just a question of whether you can have rules that can be enforced and without taking the fun out of the game, too. But nobody wants to see a, a player taunting another player. I know. Right there, there's the money quote right there. Quote, nobody wants to see a player taunting another player. <laughs> How wrong you are, my man. Talk about not knowing your audience. Nobody wants to see a player taunting another player. Everybody wants to see a player taunting another player. What a terrible rule. What a terrible take. Their head coach is Mike Loxley. Mike, it is so good to have you on. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Lots to talk about, too. So you're coming off that win over Illinois. Let me start right there. That was at their place on Friday night. I'm curious, kind of what was going through you when Joseph Petrino lined up for a 32-yard field goal that would win you that game? Well, uh, having a lot of confidence in Joe, and I know he had pushed one earlier uh, in the game. Uh, you know, my big thing was he makes that kick in practice 90% of the time, so felt really comfortable, which is why we, uh, you know, didn't necessarily take a couple shots in the end zone and risk it because we felt like we were in the spot where Joe, we, we had a lot of confidence in him being able to go make the kick. You know, on top of that, Mike, you had a great speech in the locker room after the game, making the point that while it was not a perfect game, your guys did show you something in the way they faced that adversity. They showed some grit. In fact, specifically, what did they show you in falling behind on the road in the fourth quarter and then finding a way to dig deep and come back and win that game? Yeah, you know, it's funny because earlier in the week we had talked about a, a game in 2019. We had started out 2-0 and in a fast start, and we went and played a – tough Temple team, which was very similar to what we faced out of Illinois, and knowing Brett and, and the type of coach he is that his team, we knew it would be a tough game going on the road for a conference win, and uh, for, for me, I think the biggest part is that two years ago, when we faced that type of adversity, um, and, and I look back to the play where we stripped the ball out and it bounces right into the hand of the receiver who runs in for a touchdown, our sideline would have uh, been devastated, and instead I thought I, I saw a different sideline after they made that score I saw a couple guys from both sides of the ball go to each other and say hey don't worry about it we'll make the play we're good we're good and to me that meant that that these guys are listening and so we didn't play a perfect game but we still found a way to win and to me that's that's a start of where I want this culture of this team to be right so interesting the way you answer that because it leads me to my, my next point in question Mike Loxley is joining us like one of the things you've talked about is focusing on making sure that guys come together as a team like you just pointed out that they're not only focused on the scoreboard but they're focused on the next play focusing on the next play or focusing on the next play in a game or in life is such a hard thing to do because it's so easy right to get caught up in everything else that's swirling on around you how do you go about teaching that and developing that mindset 
Man, it's just like raising kids. If you when you when you draw the line in the sand that hey, here's our standard, and and our standard is you know having been a coach and been a play caller, and I can tell you during my career I spent a lot of times looking at scoreboards and they create anxiety. You know, the scoreboard really is a liar to you until the end of the game because it really doesn't matter. And so, you know, to be down whether it's 17-10 with five minutes left as a play caller, as a player, you start to really press because you're like, man, we're down, we're behind. Well, if you don't focus on the, the scoreboard and just focus on the next play, and, you know, we've had a lot of great comebacks here. You know, Frank Reich was the starting quarterback and the greatest comeback in college football when they played Miami. And uh, it all starts with just playing that next play. And then you worry about the scoreboard at the end. And, you know, we've really tried to beat that in our players' minds that it doesn't matter what the score is until the end of the game. And let's just keep that part of state process oriented and not outcome oriented. Right. I love that part. And I love this notion of the standard being the standard. I also love the notion of the standard over feelings or mind mm-hmm. over feelings. I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. In fact, when okay. we talk mindset, Mike, I want to ask you about Trevor Moad because I know you worked with him. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's just so gutting. I don't think, I mean, did you know that he was ill? He passed away last week. And I spoke with him a number of times over the years. I had a great affinity and respect and fondness mm-hmm. for him. And I didn't even know that he was ill. Did you? And what kind of an impact did he have on you? Yeah, it's crazy because I spoke with Trevor. I mean, I usually speak with him weekly. And, uh, you know, a week ago or two weeks ago, he helps me with a lot of the, some of the messaging things we did. And, and in his honor, I actually used one of the messaging points he used about the, the, the man doesn't fall on the top of the mountain. He has to climb it and. You know, Trevor has just been so impactful the last three years that I've tried to build and develop the mental toughness of this team because we're a program that has never kind of played to our potential since I've been back here. And, you know, Trevor's been really a consistent piece with me in terms of just messaging and developing that type of mindset. And, you know, when you hear, uh, you know, it's, again, him being unselfish, he never once mentioned he, him being sick. Um, I know he moved to the mountains and, you know, during COVID. Um, and, and we've talked, like I said, plenty of times, but not once did he mention it. And, and that's just Trevor. I mean, I looked at a text message he sent me two weeks ago and he asked me for some Terp gear and for me to send a pic of my family to him. So, uh, you know, he's so impactful. I know he was very impactful at Alabama where I first started having a chance to work with them under Coach Saban. I know he helped over at Georgia, and he works with Texas A&M and a bunch of different people. So he will be missed. I really appreciate your thoughts on that. You know, I thought the same thing, Mike. Like, like if you, one thing for me not to know, because I would message with him also a little bit, but obviously you were closer to him than I was, and even you didn't know, but that point that you made about the mountains, I started thinking about that because I would watch Trevor on Instagram, and he would post pictures from Lake Arrowhead, and I would say, dude, I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful spot, because that's not too far from where we are. And now I look at that, and I wonder, right? Like, I wonder if he wanted to go there and spend his time there. But to your point, even you didn't know. So one more thing I want to ask you about him. Like, in terms of messaging and imaging, you mentioned that he inspired you to coin the phrase, the best is ahead, as part of your vision for the program. So how would you describe that vision? 
Well, you know, he says it all the time. And one of the things he would end our conversation, because, you know, in 2019, as I get the job here after leaving Alabama, where you go to three state national, three straight national championship games, and then you come to Maryland, which everybody knows I have an affinity for. As I talk about building Maryland, you know, it starts in recruiting. It starts with moving into a new facility that we just dedicated. And, you know, he would always say, you know, Locks, the best is ahead. Let's focus on the, let's focus on what it looks like or what you want it to look like. And you kind of, that is an affirmation statement when you say the best is ahead because it's a statement. It's not a question behind it. So, um, you know, from that point on in 2019, I would always in a lot of my social media, when I talked to our team, whenever I had speaking engagements, because of him using that term with me all the time, the best is ahead. That's kind of become a, a mainstay here at Maryland, you know, for a program that's building and trying to get to a place uh, where we can uh, have an impact in college football. Um, and I really think it really fits this place because I do think our best is still ahead of us. But uh, like I said, a lot of it's due to the fact of what Trevor has imparted on me um, through the years. I'm glad you and I could talk about him. Mike Loxley is joining us. You just mentioned, Mike, that a lot of people know you have an affinity for the program. For those who do not know, you've got actually deep roots and deep ties to the area. You played your college ball at Towson. You worked in the area and coached at Maryland in the late 90s. You came back in 2012. You spent time as the interim head coach in 2015. Now you're the full-time head coach. Given all of that, what does it mean to you to be the head coach at Maryland? Yeah, I mean, any time you, you can be the head coach at a place that you grew up a, a fan of. I mean, I grew up in the shadows of Coalfield House where, you know, the late Lynn Bias and, and all those great Turk basketball teams. And then in the, the mid-'80s, you know, Maryland football was one of the better programs up and down the East Coast where they won three straight ACC championships under Coach Ross, Bobby Ross. And, you know, growing up in this area, we didn't have a – you know, I grew up in D.C., so we didn't have a, a, a university for the, for, for the district of Columbia so I naturally was a Maryland fan and spent a lot of times coming up here in my childhood and teenage years rooting for the Terps and to be able to be a part of it for 14 years three different stints like you talked about um, it's a place that's been great for to me and my family um, there's a very fruitful area for recruiting um, it's just great to be able to coach the hometown team man it means more to you when when you kind of are as invested as I am thing is, Mike, you're invested in a number of things that are above and beyond the game itself. As an example, you've, all, you've been an advocate for hiring and supporting women within the football program. Why is that something that is so important for you and for the program? Well, I just think this area kind of bleeds it. You know, this area is the richest minority area in the country. And growing up here, uh, I've seen minorities really strive and thrive because of what this area brings. And, and for me, um, I've kind of been that guy that loves the underdog. I was an underdog, still am. Um, you know, not a lot of people really uh, thought that I could have success here or the success that we're going to be able to have here. And uh, I just like, you know, paying things forward because I know I didn't get here by accident and I didn't get here on my own and a lot of people helped me get here. So I look at it to me with the coalition I started for, for minority coaches and, you know, with women in, in the sport of football, I look at it as me paying things forward for the opportunities I've been granted. Mike Loxley is the head coach of Maryland. Mike, there's so many things that we could still talk about. I do want to ask you about this before you go. You're also leading the way when it comes to mental health awareness. When you face Iowa on October 1st, it will be a mental health awareness game. I know that's something that is very close to your heart. Why is that an area where you want to put your time and your resources? 
Yeah, you know, uh, my son Miko Loxley was murdered in in 2017 when I was the offensive coordinator at uh, Ill- at uh, Alabama, and he dealt with uh, mental health issues from uh, the age of 21 until he died. And uh, as a family, it was nothing that we were very familiar with. And my wife Kia and I dived right into trying to understand it. And you know, typically when someone is injured, you break an arm, you can put a cast on it. People understand that you're hurt. Well, the brain is one of the areas, you know, when when the brain is hurt and the mental health issues uh, take on a life of of themselves, there's not a lot of people to have sympathy or even empathy to understand it. And so, um, you know, dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, I learned that the age of 21 is where a lot of these breakthroughs happen with mental health issues. And so, you know, the group of kids that I deal with, I, I see it. I know what it looks like now, and I haven't had a, a son that dealt with it. So, again, paying things forward, uh, my wife and I just feel it's a really important uh, endeavor for us to bring light that, you know, un, just like t- tearing an ACL, uh, mental health issues are, are, are real um, and, and that they deserve to be uh, helped uh, any way you can. And so we've created a lot of initiatives within our program and within our community that we can use to try to help combat the stigma against mental health issues. Exactly. The stigma against mental health. Mike, one last thought, because and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I tend to forget myself, right? I've got a son who's 20. I have a son or we have a son who's 20 and a son who's 16. And I find myself getting a little bit short sometimes and maybe not as empathetic. And in some of the times, frankly, I think that they deserve it. But at the same time, I think that you can speak to this when you deal. And mental health is something that affects everybody. But what about people this age, teenagers? You know, they're dealing with challenges in their life that are really hard for somebody at that age to bear. And they might have to go through it alone. Like, what have you learned from your players in doing this work? I learned that the more you're open about it's okay to take off the helmet and take off the mask, as my my friend Rachel Barbeau talks about, uh, when you can encourage them to communicate because, you know, these guys, they have so much information and so much things thrown at them uh, that we didn't have growing up. And now to have a outlet where they can communicate those things uh, and it, and then make it a comfortable environment where it's not, you know, you know, a football player is not cool to say, hey, I'm going through depression or I've got some stuff going on. So we try to really extract the baggage that they come in with by making it really easy and cool to talk about, hey, these things are going on in my life and I need a little help. I wonder about that, right? It seems like counterintuitive because the culture for so long was, hey, man, fight, battle, never show weakness, never let them know, never show them. But at the same time, you still want to cultivate that kind of toughness and mental toughness and physical toughness and emotional toughness. But you want to cultivate empathy as well, too. So how do you go about doing both those things? Well, it goes back to I equate everything to being a parent, man. You, 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 you got to hug them when they're doing, you know, great, and 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 get on them when they're doing, you know, bad. But still, find a way to have that relationship with them, where they feel comfortable enough to tell you that hey, things are going on. And you know, to me, that's my role as the head coach. Our roles as coaches is not just about what happens on the football field, but helping them be the best version of themselves, to be great husbands, great fathers great spouses, uh, you know, as they as they mature in our program. You bet. One last thought. What about something on the football field? You're getting ready for Kent State on Saturday. What is your message to the team this week as they get ready for that game? 
you know, it's just win Monday through Friday. That's that's the goal. That's the standard. Meaning we got to go out and have great practices Monday through Friday. Really, the opponent on Saturday doesn't matter. It's about what we do, and let's do it as best as we possibly can with the right kind of mindset. He's the head football coach at Maryland. He's in his third season right there. And once again, Maryland 3-0 and and in first in the Big Ten East. Mike, I appreciate you, and I appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. Good night,